0: You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood.
1: Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read and talk about the Bible. Last, yeah. we, were, last we were here, um, <laughs> things got way off the rails, and I don't even know where we ended.
0: No, that's fine. I, I, because, you know, hey, my, my notes last longer. I don't have to do as much work. And, you know, people get to hear me do one of my favorite things, which is rant and rave about stuff that doesn't seem to concern many other people. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I have enough. to watch myself but no we we were actually uh, where were we we we're in 1 kings chapter 5 yeah. and we were talking about uh Solomon and uh he's getting ready to build the temple and he had had this communication with king Hiram of Tyre i think we got off on the mason stuff just a little bit um
1: yeah and um are you sure we have a plan cuz uh, I'm kind of concerned when you say where were we?
0: Um, <laughs> no, I have a plan. I just haven't had much sleep. Um yeah, that, that's, that's fair. The- <laughs> I mean, I just want to make sure cuz you're the
1: one who's supposed to be in charge of the show notes. So that's
0: <laughs> I don't know if I should be in charge of anything right now. But evidently that's my lot in life. I'm in charge of show notes and uh keeping multiple people alive, which I don't if you want to talk about wisdom, we can talk about the wisdom of that decision. But uh, anyway, um, now we we are in First Kings five. I know that we uh, talked about, uh, like I said, the Mason stuff and how King Hiram of Tyre is not Hiram Abiff of, of the Masons, and how he's also not the King of Tyre addressed in Ezekiel the Satan is the Satan figure that everybody's so familiar with. Um, so we don't want to confuse those two. And we're going to talk a little starting bit early today. Uh, yeah. He, um, he, Hector, bless his heart, has reached puberty. And now he's like on a very short leash all the time because he doesn't want to behave himself. And so if you hear him grumble and it's because he wants to be free to chase things. So we aren't going to allow that. But, uh, yeah, we just don't want to let Hiram, the Hiram character in this story to become something he's not. And so we're going to talk about some historical background with him, uh, what we know of him, where we get that knowledge from. And uh, he he really is kind of an interesting person in history, uh, mostly because there's like a lot of guys from this time period and, and gals. We just have these little nuggets. And so we're going to talk about those. But we're going to pick up in verse 6, and that's going to be our lead-in to talking about some some stuff beyond what's happening just in the Bible and actually look at some historical context. So verse 6 reads, Now, therefore, command the cedars, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay your, for your servants such wages as you set. For you know there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidians. Now, the Cedars of Lebanon, um, These are this is really fascinating. There is so much about the Cedars of Lebanon, not just in the Bible, but like in all of ancient history. I mean, these things, uh, if you go and look at the um, pictures online, see how they grow. They're just kind of like, you know, Americans are fascinated with the redwood forest and the sequoia trees in California. Uh, this was basically the equivalent of the ancient world, uh, but even more so. And, you know, they've just captured people's imaginations because they're, they're just a unique tree. A uh, little note, because they haven't been getting as much um, cold weather in that part of the world, they're actually becoming endangered. Hmm. And so because uh, the, the seed itself needs a really hard freeze to crack that seed open so it can germinate. But they, they grow on mountaintops. Uh, they start about 1,400 feet above sea levels. Uh, and like I said, they need that freezing temperatures that you get at that level. Uh, but they also have a very limited habitat that is sustainable for them that they can actually continue to thrive in. And so they have been around. They're still around. They're thousands of years old. There's some of our older plant lives and they're still um, just as impressive today as what the ancient literature seems to describe them as. And so now, and of course, now they're protected, but they've been protected for a really long time because people have recognized their value. And there's also a lot of super superstition around these trees in particular. So uh, our first mention of these trees historically goes back to the epic of Gilgamesh. And, you know, parts of that were written roughly a thousand years before Solomon.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so there's a whole story there that, um, and we did an episode on Gilgamesh. We didn't go into this part of the story because it wasn't relevant back then. But, you know, the Gil- Gilgamesh story actually serves as a basis. Well, no, That's wrong. That's the wrong way to say it. Um, it shares a lot of themes with, mm-hmm. with the Bible. Uh, and this is one of those stories that when it came to light and people began to realize that there are other, there are other ancient stories that share some of the biblical elements, people kind of got a little antsy and felt like maybe the Bible was a ripoff and you know kind of a retelling of stories that belong to other religions. Which now we know, you know, that's not true. Um, there are similarities because they're both talking about similar time periods. They're both talking mm-hmm. about events that happened in the ancient world. They they do approach it from a completely different perspective and viewpoint. But when the Bible tells about the same events that are being talked about in the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh, what the Bible does, it reframes it so that the God of Israel is greater than the gods presented in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. And it's not something to be afraid of. It, it's, it, and I know there, there are Christians, and I've read it, where you know, they are just like, oh, it's a forgery, it's fake. Okay, it's not fake. It's not a forgery. It's been authenticated over and over again. And it is something that is very insightful for helping us understand the worldview. But that's the reason why when we're talking about the cedars of Lebanon, this story actually is very helpful because we begin to see that these trees almost have their very own mythology about them. And so in the story of Gilgamesh, um, Gilgamesh and his sidekick, uh, in Enkidu, They uh, capture the guardian of the cedars. And in the battle, it says they whirl around in circles, Mount Hermon and Lebanon split. And so, you know, get this direct reference back to Mount Hermon. If you uh, are familiar with Dr. Heiser's work, reversing Hermon, and you look and see uh, some of the things that are said about Hermon in the book of Enoch, this is the mountain where the the um, watchers or the uh, Gregory or, you know, however you want to refer to them where they're imprisoned underneath this mountain. And then this is also the same place where when Jesus and Peter have that uh, famous talk about the gates of hell, this is the same place. So that, that spot has always been kind of a spiritually charged spot and mm-hmm. these trees because of this, they're also very spiritually charged, if you will. I mean, that's kind of taking a little liberty. But at the same time, you you have these trees in a place that's very significant um, from the beginning of time and as far back as we have in written history. So um, almost every known ancient culture held cedars in general to be um, you know, a tree of great significance. I mean, there's cedar has a lot of really great properties uh you do woodworking so you know more about the you know their properties as far as building than i do
1: well, I, uh, well and that's what is interesting to me like, cedar is actually kind of one of your softer woods at least what we have in the u.s so i don't know if, if the cedar of lebanon is is a harder wood than the varieties we have here so that's kind of I curious think, to me
0: didn't think to look it at uh you know but i think Really, one of the big things is they're they're insect resistant and they don't rot uh, that, as quickly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. uh, well, that is a big deal with cedar here as well. It's I know when we do our garden beds, we like to make them out of cedar when we can, when mm-hmm. it's in the budget, because right. uh, it it will last. I mean, you do a, a pine or something, it might last you uh, three to five years. With cedar, you're looking seven to twelve, depending on your conditions. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's I actually, uh, was, that's uh, speaking of, I actually moved some of the raised beds, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> I used the tractor to just pop them off the dirt <laughs> like a ring. And they, they've been in place for about uh, four or five years, and they, they were still pretty stable. So I was, I was pretty surprised.
0: <laughs> well, and when you think about how there's no pest control or very little pest control, and we all know that all the natural stuff is not as effective as the chemicals, because sometimes the chemicals are too effective. Uh, when you think about um, the fact that they are building in a more of an arid situation than, you know, Oklahoma, which stays at 90% humidity most of the time, Uh, that might be a slight exaggeration. But, you know, so the dampness isn't there. I mean, you would see how cedar could actually be something that would be very, um, it would be a very stable building material for them at that point in time. But it's not just the, the fact that it's, uh, good for building these things. It's actually um, it, it actually has a lot of medicinal properties. And so we've got um, cedar resin, cedar uh, bark tea, um, there's all sorts of ancient things that that use cedar as as a medicine. And um, and of course, like I said, that I'm gonna get too far ahead of my notes here. Um, Anyway, the, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Mesopotamians all praise cedar, and they use them in the building of ships and temples, palaces, and fortresses is what I've got written here because the the idea that this is a really just a wonderful, plentiful wood uh, wood for building. And we've also got to remember there's not a lot of other trees in this area. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that part of the world's not known for its majestic forest. And the Egyptians, what's interesting about them is they actually were so, cons- uh, sorry, so convinced. That's the word I'm looking for. So convinced that cedars were connected to the divine origin, some kind of uh, special dispensation from the gods that whenever they built boats for their, their gods to float down the Nile on, they always were built of cedar. And uh, the resin was used in mummification as kind of to enhance that, that conduit to the other side into the spiritual realm. And there's, the, um, the, uh, there's an Egyptian tale about the Temple of Akhat, which recounts how the cedars of Lebanon specifically are used in the temples of Sin and Shamash. So cedar uh, likely comes from a Phoenician word, and that word would mean uh, strength and power. Mm-hmm. Because for the Phoenicians, since they were used in building both temples and in their ships and boats, that was the source of the Phoenician prosperity and their strength as settlers and traders. Uh, the Cedars, Cedars of Lebanon, um, logs, they, they've dug them up from Philistine temples. That's how long they've lasted. They, they were that stable that we have Philistine temples that have been excavated that still are intact. Intact. That were made of cedar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Herod's palace, uh, Herod from the Bible, made from cedar. Sargon II, he imported cedar, uh, the cedars of Lebanon for his palace. Uh, There's a so-called, it's called the Jesus boat, and this made headlines uh, a few years back. It it was a boat that was found um, in the Mediterranean Sea. It was made from the first century, so we know it was roughly the time of Jesus, still intact at the bottom of the sea. And it was also made from Caesar and there's a Caesar cedar. I know you caught me. I saw your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was, I
1: was, I was looking well, I was actually looking while, uh, while you were talking, apparently it is a soft wood, but the main reason that they use it is because it is a tight grain wood and it is also insect resistant, but it's a, it's a tight grain wood with a a nice look to it, Um, which when you're doing big projects is pretty important to have something that's, not got a ton of knots in it and all mm-hmm.
0: that. Well, and where yeah, where the the wood does shift and transition from the various growth stages, it, it's just gorgeous. I uh, for anyone who hasn't seen, Ty built me a book wheel, and he built that out of cedar. And I mean, there's just places on it where it looks like it's on fire. It's just mm-hmm. the grain and the color, it, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so, yeah, I I was so impressed that he built that. I mean. that's what better present could my husband give me, but, um, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) and so, um, can't wait for the rest of the office to be built so I can actually use it. And then we'll have a different background for me when we're recording. Yep. But there's a legend that said that every empire that ever plundered and exploited the cedar forest, like did not take care of them, did not show them the proper respect brought about their own destruction. And it was basically because it was disrespecting the forest gods. Um, and that's that's very interesting to me because um, there there is within the Bible, we talk about the, uh, is it the Stokia, uh That were the, supposed to be like the forest gods, as are mentioned. Paul writes about them. Doug Overmeyer, um, C or C, he has some articles written about that. Uh, they're mm-hmm. with his stuff, so you can look those up. I actually wrote one of those entries there. So, but even the psalmist, here's where it got really interesting. The psalmist in Psalms 104, 16 attributes the cedars of Lebanon to a supernatural origin. It says the trees of the Lord and watered abundantly the are ce- watered abundantly the cedars he planted, that God Himself planted these trees. So that's how far back and how significant they're seen as being even within the the culture of israel itself it's not just something for other um other cultures to say that these there's something special about these trees um the bible talks about the cedars of lebanon 105 times or is that 103 i can't read my writing 103 times so um so like i said they're they're thought to be medicinal um they throughout the Ancient Near Eastern culture: We have um, the resin being used for arthritis, circulation, cuts and scrapes, abdominal pain, diarrhea, warts. Um, Leviticus fourteen four: We're told that a person healed of leprosy is to use a cedar a cedar in the ritual for purification. Now, this has caused some people to make this uh, this um, mistake of somehow thinking that cedar. Um, was what brought about the cure for leprosy. And what we got to remember, this is what distinguishes uh, the biblical uses of cedar, in this case, from other nations or other uses. The cedar is not used in Leviticus as a medicine. It's not what produces the cure. The cedar is just used in the purification after the illness is gone. Only God heals. Mm-hmm. in Jewish religion and in Jewish thought. So the, the uh, cedar is not some magical element being brought in, with, which is how other cultures would have viewed it. This is simply using it as a way to acknowledge the fact that God has brought about healing. So the cedars are still, like I said, they're highly esteemed uh, people in Lebanon to this day invoke the cedars in vows, you know, I swear upon the, or vow upon the, the cedars uh catholics in lebanon ask that the cedars pray for them and so that they actually ask that the cedars intercede on their behalf and um, they consider the cedars to be a symbol of the virgin mary which i found that to be interesting Hmm. so a lot of stuff and i mean i just barely scratched the surface about what we know about these trees and that kind of stuff I just I love uh, you know to me those that's the fun bit of trivia that that we need to uh, know more about to make history and culture more interesting, more so than dates and numbers and things like that
1: yeah well and, and it's and it's a piece of uh it's a it's a, a landmark from the Bible that's still I'm mean, not necessarily a landmark but an item that you can still go and see and mm-hmm. and experience um, whereas you know some of the things are not there anymore. The building, some of the buildings, right. you know, things have moved around, but, um, but yeah, this is something that is it's still, still very tangible.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's still very tangible. It still has that, that presence in the minds of the people who live there. And, you know, I, I think that's really awesome that when you can kind of see that unbroken chain back into history. Uh, now, in this verse, now that we kind of talked about the cedars, we'll get back to Solomon. He proposes that their servants, both Hiram's and Solomon's servants work together, and Solomon's going to pay Hiram's servant whatever Hiram decides they're worth. Uh, in part, that's because the, the the cedars that he needs for the temple, I mean, they're the only appropriate material for a temple at this point in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you use something else, you are not building the best. You're not giving the most excellent thing to your God. Right as yeah go ahead
1: yeah well it it, and again you know to i know last week i referenced the the mansion oil mansion up here it's it's there is a room that the all of the walls there's a a one of the dining rooms uh all of the walls on it are uh finished off in wood from the royal forest in england and so like you know this is kind of one of those things i'm thinking of listening to this exchange and you're talking about the cedars which are highly valued and prized. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to get that wood, you have to have permission from the king and queen. Mm-hmm. Um so it's it's you know, we still have things like this going on today.
0: Right. Well, and that's and this is the really cool part because, you know, Solomon's actually having to to get permission from the king of Tyre to to bring these in. Uh and and because these cedars are limited to the specific location, he also needs the men with the expertise on how to work it. Now, one of the things I think we forget in the ancient world, a carpenter is not some lowly craftsman just, you know, squeaking out his existence, you know, with the, the toil of his hands, you know, that, that's not who a carpenter was in that culture. Matter of fact, if you go to that same area today, carpenters are still highly esteemed Mm -hmm. they they are very much almost revered because carpentry is a skill and i know you do woodworking ty does woodworking and and there's a lot of thought that goes into this there's Mm -hmm. a lot of you i know um ty told me after he was you know trying to put this book wheel together and trying to work out the mechanics and the angles and everything he's like yes i'm worn out just from thinking about all the math And then right before we started recording today, you're trying to tell me how you're going to put a project together and work out all your angles and how to attach pieces.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Woodworking is really easy if it's all 90 degrees. (laughs) Man, you you get off 90 and 45, you're in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) you can get in trouble really quick anyway.
0: (laughs) And that's the thing. I mean, when you're building, your carpenters would have built everything. When you take plastic and you take metal, for the most part, out of the equation for household goods, Mm -hmm. wood and clay is pretty much what you're left with. And so some stonework. Um, You've got to know how to to make everything out of these items. And and that's not always easy, and especially when you take power tools out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, I cannot imagine. I mean, there's no way. I've got these beautiful routered edges on my book wheel. Do you think I would have those if Ty didn't have a router? Absolutely (laughs) not. He would have said, this is the best I can do, and it's all you're getting. And and I couldn't blame him. But these guys were doing these elaborate things with wood and even with stone, because carpenters, that did cross over into the stone masonry, because so often the two materials were worked together. And they were so highly revered that if your village was lacking a rabbi, and you needed to have some kind of um, answer to a question, the next person you would go to would be the carpenter. And matter of fact, a lot of the the famous rabbis back through the ages were carpenters, and they would teach their disciples while they did carpentry tasks. Sounds very similar to... Well, a lot of our traditions about Jesus, because we do presume a lot of times that Jesus followed with the carpentry, because it was very common for a son to follow in his father's uh, footsteps. So, you know, while you're working with your hands, and you know, you think about you know, sanding a piece of wood, it would have taken for hour, you know, for for hours, forever, hours, whatever. You've got all that time while you're doing something that's essentially mindless to Mm -hmm. actually have the conversations. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so you didn't waste that time; you put it to good work. And so now you've got an income plus you're being um, you're able to minister to others. So uh, when the another reason why Solomon needed Hiram's men is these dealing with these trees are dangerous. A uh, hundred and thirty foot tall tree, eight foot in diameter. I've helped cut down trees. I've never cut down anything that big. Right. Uh, I, I, I can't even imagine the sound it would make when it hit the ground. And can you imagine trying to, to chop that tree down with primitive saws and axes, all hand tools, no chainsaws? I mean, it, I, I think that's a little easier for us to grasp because we still have the lumberjack images in our minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a f- totally foreign concept. Thank you, Bronnie um but you know the the idea of of doing this and recognizing exactly how dangerous this is it, it, it's kind of mind blowing when you when you understand the the magnitude of it and so um you know the other thing too is like i said 1400 feet above sea level
1: mhm
0: you they've got to get it 1400 down off 1500 or
1: 14000
0: 1400
1: 1,400,
0: but trying to move the wood down those mountains, trying to get it. Because they're going to take it all the way down to the Mediterranean. They're going to float it over to a port where Solomon's men can then carry it inland. And so, I no, I I had to move the tree from my front yard onto my front porch for firewood and little bitty pieces. I wasn't happy about any of that. It was a lot of work. I got splinters. I broke a nail. I mean, you know, um, and when I say, you know, I'm not a girly girl in that respect, but you know, when you break a nail and it hurts, you you remember it. So anyway, my little disclaimer, uh, but Solomon just flat out acknowledges, and this is one part of wisdom too in, in action. He acknowledges that the men that Hiram can bring to the table are much more skilled in this area than his own. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, when somebody's better at something, when somebody has that skill, they've got that experience, acknowledge it. Don't discount it. Don't act like you're better than they are. It's not some kind of failing if somebody's done something for 20 years and they're better at it than because you've never done it before. Solomon does this. So there's just, you know, just a little practical application. Um, the, the two cities that are um, being dealt with in this, um, in this exchange between Solomon and, um, Hiram, they're Phoenician cities. Uh, they're in close proximity. This is, that's Tyre and Sidon. Um, geographically, they're, they're fairly, fairly connected. And, um, but yet, they're, they're two distinct cities. And any history we have on this point, I need to point this out before we get too deep. Any history we have on this po- point of time is secondhand. Um, it was written several hundred years after the events. And I'm talking secular history here. I'm talking about things outside of the Bible. And, you know, and honestly, some of the reports are conflicting. So we have to kind of just weigh the information we do have. But the, the basic facts of the of situation seem to be that Tyre was founded by, <clears throat> excuse me, allergy season again in Oklahoma. Um Tyre was founded We've by got Sid-
1: about 7 of those for anyone right? who doesn't live here.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Tyre was founded by Sidon and the the two cities were also united not just by geography but also through shared history. And as Egypt began to fade from the the political and military scene, you know, they kind of declined in power, Tyre began to bolster its power and status by starting to build all of these little trading posts throughout the um the Mediterranean and around that particular sea and by the time Solomon takes um takes the throne Tyre is um wow my eyes just went crazy Tyre was either united or had uh, yeah, had gained control over Sedona. That's what I'm trying to, what my notes are trying to tell me. So they had either become so combined that there was no distinction or Tyre was now effectively basically just running Sedona as um, an underling city. And because before this point in time, Sedona was the powerhouse. Sedona was the one that garnered all the attention and was the one to, to be feared. In the book of Joshua, we have uh, the great Sidon referred to, and that's 11.8, and then in 1928, Sidon the Great. Hmm. So even in Joshua's time, Sidon was the powerhouse, not Tyre. So there's been some kind of flip from the time of the, the conquest of Canaan to the time that Solomon takes the throne. And so, because when Solomon's talking to Hiram, he isn't asking Hiram to go negotiate a deal with, with Sidon. He's basically saying Hiram has the ability to, to tell the Sidonians what to do. So the ancient history, historians, uh, Menander, Dias, and Josephus, they um, attribute temples to Zeus, Hercules, or Milkat, um, and Asarte to Hiram. He was known at this point, to be an expert temple builder. He had done it for all these other deities, uh, at least the people, you know, he probably didn't build it himself, but he was the one who commissioned it. He's the one who hired the art- artisans who built it. He knew the business of temple building. And so Solomon is basically taking advantage of this guy's previous experience and expertise to make sure that the temple he built is going to be every bit as good as the temples built in these other cities and these other countries, and also that the God of Israel does not wind up with a subpar temple. Now, House, uh, he, Dr. House, uh, he notes that both Solomon and Hiram were aggressive young kings, and uh, basically they partnered together to, to ex- exploit the trade routes, because Tyre, being a Phoenician city, they had all the trade routes and the trade ports around the Mediterranean, But Israel was what controlled the trade routes over land. And so the two of them together were able to make a very lucrative partnership that really helped both in the world of trade. And if you aren't conquering through warfare, which Solomon wasn't, remember there's peace all around in Solomon's time, then trade routes are the way to gain power and authority because it's just another way to gain wealth and money. So. You know, not much has changed in those aspects. People are still the same. So verse seven, (laughs) as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, blessed be the Lord this day, who has given David a wise son to be over this great uh, people. So very odd thing for the king of Tyre to say. It's just really odd that a foreign king would be so exuberant in his praise of another, um, nation and that he would acknowledge another nation as being a great people. Um, So especially when you realize that as king of Tyre, he is the embodied representative of an opposing God, not the God of Israel. And he, in this speech, he invokes the name of God as given to Moses at the burning bush. Now, DeVries, he claims that this is an insertion later on that an editor, like, put these words in Hiram's mouth. Uh, He says that they're unthinkable and implausible is how he describes them. You know, I tend to be more conservative. The Bible says it. I'm going to go with what it says, unless there's just, like, a real clear reason to think that this is a later insertion. Um, I don't have a problem with Tyre, the king of Tyre, actually praising God. I don't think that's a horrible thing. I think it's, I do think it is weird, but at the same time, we have people outside of Israel who are acknowledging that Yahweh is greater, that Yahweh Mm -hmm. is, you know, the God to be served. And then the other thing, too, we got to realize if this is a diplomatic exchange between two kings, flattery is normal. This kind of, of over the top kind of, um, formal salutation, these these would not be unthinkable. So I I think DeVries is kind of, he, I think he kind of focuses too much and wants to attribute too much to a later editor. He doesn't want to let the text be the text. And so I, you know, when you get into textual criticism, you, there are those people who are like, oh, well, you know, this was done there and this was done, there. they kind of want to take apart the Bible. And I think we need textual criticism. I think we need people who are going to be looking with that kind of almost jaundiced eye occasionally to point out things that we may not be looking at. But you need to realize that's what's going on, that people are are trying to, to take this to the extreme, to try to pick out all the little threads and label and tag each one and attribute them to a, a specific time period that the Bible doesn't necessarily attribute it to. And, if you understand that and you can read it and go, well, you know, I just don't agree with that. That's okay. Yeah. You know, you don't have to let somebody else's opinion, especially when we can't definitively say, Oh, there's no way we have copies of this conversation, you know, 800 years later, you, you have the right to say, maybe they're wrong and to be exposed to that idea and to think about what they present and agree or disagree. So you're thinking I can see it. <laughs> no, I just
1: I I was just listening to what you were thinking about what you were saying because there's there there is very much in, in a lot of um uh, in a lot of the uh, circles of people that I listen to there's there tends to be a lot of people who want to go well if you disagree you're wrong and then they get they get really defensive. And I, I actually I was had a had a conversation with my boss uh I guess it's been a probably close to a year ago now, but we're, he was talking about um, different religions and things like that. And he, and he, he asked me some questions and, and I answered to the best of my ability. And he's like, he's like, why is it? He's like, why is it you and I can have a conversation about this and no one gets upset. But when I go and I ask a lot of other people, they just get defensive and angry. and, And I said, the best I can guess is that they're insecure that's the only thing I can figure out is that they stopped really looking at a lot of this stuff whenever it got a little scary and hold mm-hmm. up and decided to, you know, just not engage with it anymore. And, right. and that's really sad.
0: It, it really is. And you know, and we've got some people in the paddle store who are, are being really bold about the things they're wrestling with and the things that they don't understand. And, and I know that there's sometimes a tendency when you have been a be- believer for a while, or you know, been in church for a while, or that oh well, I'm not supposed to admit that this bothers me. And I love the fact that people are actually having the conversations. I love the fact that they're discussing these things and being vulnerable and saying, hey, this this doesn't set right with me, or I don't understand this, or how do you reconcile this with that? And you know, I don't think you know, we're going to answer everybody's questions or we're going to be able to put everyone's mind at ease. But I think it's good that we wrestle with these ideas and we wrestle with these concepts and try to come to a, some kind of understanding and do so from a place of just recognizing that God can fill in the gaps and that sometimes it's okay not to have all the answers and say, sometimes you just have to have faith, but at the, but not going to that other extreme where faith is an excuse not to think.
1: Yeah, well, and, yeah, and I kind of am hesitant with the uh, saying God can fill in the gaps, because then you're, then you're kind of open up to the, the God of the gaps fallacy, <laughs> um, which is, I mean, I, and, and that's not really so much uh, an argument with the textual criticism as it is with people who are very scientifically minded. Uh, they tend to, uh, to view Christianity as believing in the, the God of the, the gaps, where anything you can't explain scientifically Well, you just, you just insert deity there. Yeah. And which, which to me, I'm going, uh, well, I mean, you're not, and in my mind, you're not um, removing deity once you figure out the physical properties or the way that God instituted things to work. You're you're saying, okay, Mm -hmm. well, that's how God chose for that to work. And these are the laws that he put in place to govern it. And, and I don't, and I don't know, I've always kind of never been afraid of, the gaps in science (laughs) i've never been afraid of new scientific discoveries i mean so you
0: know you know in my mind like okay if we're gonna talk about science any kind of science discovery that seems to you know blow something we accepted out of the water or you know makes us reevaluate uh the way what we thought god had to do it is a really great thing because it challenges our preconceptions Mm-hmm. And it challenges our limitations that we have subconsciously put on God. And so I don't have a pro- when people go, oh, well, you know, this just is going to remove all need for God. No, because there's always something bigger than science can explain. That's just the way it is. Right. And if you think science can explain everything, you need to get out more. You need to actually be interacting with people. You need to to be investing in relationships because even just having a relationship with another human being, Really demonstrates that science can't explain it all. Yeah. Why are you know, why do I love my husband so much? He drives me crazy. You know why does he love me so much? I drive him crazy. Um, yeah, we can talk about pheromones and hormones and all that stuff, but you know that stuff fades. Let's just be all honest about biology. There, <laughs> that, that's the, they lose the new husband, new wife smell after so long. And it becomes down to a matter of commitment and this devotion and dedication that exceeds scientific rationale and well, so
1: well, and to me if you're if you're thinking that okay, because a lot of the argument I, I that I hear and of course I hear this more from like the uh, casual atheist uh, right. <laughs> who is who is uh, more of you know well, there couldn't be uh, a creator because there's no way one creator one person could think of all these things and it's, in, in my mind, that's just as we used to say in sales, that's, uh, that's buying out of your own wallet <laughs> or selling out of your own wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may not be able, as a salesperson who just started on the sales floor, you may not be able to purchase a $4,000 Paul Reed Smith guitar, but that doesn't mean that the person who rolled up in the parking lot can't.
0: Right. right.
1: And so, and it's funny to me, excuse me. Whenever you get into all these discoveries and they, they're like, oh, there's no way uh, there's no way some kind of divine being could have, you know, developed quantum physics. I'm like, well, you could conceive of it.
0: Right. And you're right. just
1: a person. I mean, yeah. it, it, we're, we're not talking about people. And again, it's, it's that <laughs> whole selling out of your own wallet mindset, I think, uh, is is about the best analogy I've come up for that because. We just do, Because you can't.: <laughs> Right. It, it, and, I, and I see that on both sides. I see that in the scientific realm, and I see that in, um, in a lot I see that with a lot of Christians, I mean, because the, the, the ideas behind like the unseen realm and this divine council worldview.
0: Oh my goodness. Um, yes.
1: It's really, really interesting to me that um, so many uh, Christians, particularly Christians who are very well acquainted with most of the Bible. Are so resistant to this idea, mm-hmm. and as you know, Heiser talked about in q and A, and is that it's, and he goes not to sound arrogant, he goes, but I have enough imagination to mm-hmm. be able to conceive of a God who can deal with this worldview, right? And a lot of the guys who don't, who rely on their systematic, if it goes outside their systematic, they don't have the imagination to uh to follow what <laughs> what the bible says i'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing what he said but right um you know that and it makes sense to me because there is and again i personally think it's funny how many of these questions that a lot of uh theologians and apologists um struggle with and 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 out and some of them just outright a- avoid um because it makes them uncomfortable that i'm going i've been thinking about this thing since I was like six years old, mm-hmm. because I used to sit and watch Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know it's, it's get into some science fiction, get into something and engage your imagination, make your mind bigger mm-hmm. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. it can hold on to these ideas and these problems and figure out, okay, well, how, how can this work? And you're not just locked into, nope, God operates this way and only this way and this way every single time. And um, at that point, you're putting more faith in your formula than you are in God, as far as I'm concerned.: uh, it, and Well, I, it, I just anytime... so to me, it's like, make God bigger. Stop, stop saying because you can't imagine the world being that way, that doesn't mean the world isn't that way. Right. Those well, are two any... very different things.
0: <laughs> anytime you feel comfortable with your idea of God, you're, you're playing too small. And that's just what it boils down to. If you feel comfortable, if you think God is something easily managed or easily understood, you're just playing too small. And that should be your tip off. I think, at least for me, it is. It's like the minute I start thinking I've got God figured out and this is exactly how he operates, who he is and what he's capable of, what he will or won't do, then I have to step back and go, wait a minute, I'm imposing my limitations. Mm -hmm. on an infinite Mm -hmm. God. And and so every time we get to that place, and sometimes we need to really stop and ask ourselves and kind of do that internal inventory and say, am I, you know, being okay with God? Am I really comfortable with this? Or am I just paying lip service to the idea that he deserves awe, Mm -hmm. that he deserves, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that sense of wonder. And, um, you know, I think there's a growing process where as we grow, our understanding of God grows. And so then we know that as that growth in our understanding occurs, then the ineffable, to use um, Abraham Joshua Heschel's word, the ineffable should also grow in perspective. Uh, and it, it's an ongoing story. It, it's uh, that book that never ends in a way, because it, it's always going to, you know, God's always going to be unraveling and unfolding in ways that we just don't expect. Uh, and that's the cool part. That that should excite us and not scare us. And uh, I think a lot of people have been told if you can't define it and you can't nail it down, then that's just too scary to deal with. So, um, but anyway, back to Hiram and, and Solomon. Um, they, they have this, like, like I said, this is, you know, this court protocol, this flowery over-the-top speech. And um, in verse eight, I think we just even see more confirmation of that, because Hiram says to Solomon, "I have heard the messengers uh, the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of the cedar and Cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct, And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet um, my wishes by providing uh, wood for the household." So Hiram's response here is uh, much more abbreviated than what we have in Second Chronicles. Chapter two, we have a replay of the or a parallel account of this conversation. And it's exactly what we expect from the writer of first and second Samuel going into kings. He only gives us the information we need as we need it. We've seen this before if there's, you know, even more contextual information, he's probably not going to include it unless it has something to do with the matter at hand. And he's decided this is all we need to know. Now, in in Chronicles, when Solomon reaches out to Hiram, there's no mention of Hiram initiating the message. In Kings, Hiram starts the conversation, Solomon responds. In Chronicles, Solomon's the one who sends a message to Hiram and solomon's message includes various details on how god will be worshiped within the temple it gets very um you know it, it's a lot of extraneous information i would think uh that the king of tyre probably didn't need but solomon wants to make sure it's well uh, um well communicated and it's a very grandiose um description well, good like,
1: and we we don't know also he you you mentioned he was a good temple builder Solomon may have been going over his plans, like, hey, here's here's what we're gonna do. <laughs>
0: right. Right. And
1: I you know, you, you you consult people, you know, right right I mean, right now the, the place I work, we're looking at adding some uh we're looking at adding some sidewalks. So what do we do? We call a concrete specialist who knows all the ADA compliance rules <laughs> um and who can yep. put it together. You know, that that's what you do. So I mean it, to me that that's just practical knowledge a practical application
0: yeah well and and, i mean that does make sense well let's let's read what second chronicle says i'm gonna read verses five and six to kind of give you an idea of the flavor of what's going on um with with the contrasting conversations it says solomon says the house that i am to build will be great for our god is greater than all gods but who is able to build a house for him since heaven since heaven even the highest heaven cannot contain him who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So Solomon understands, number one, he, he cannot build a house for God. Not, not really. He can build a place that God can kind of visit with him. And we talked about that last week with the name of God, you know, being in the temple. But then he goes on to request a request of very specific workers. He asked for goldsmiths, goldsmith, silversmiths, uh, smiths, blacksmiths, engravers. Uh, weavers, people who uh, to sew the fabrics. Uh, he asked for more men to work with the wood, and the um, chronicle. Uh, where this is where Chronicles and Kings diverge, because uh, the chronicler can, uh, combines this con- conversation with the conversation included in First Kings seven. So there's more of the details of the temple and how it's going to be built in First Kings seven than we have in chapter five. But Hiram's response overall is is joyful. Uh, He does modify Solomon's request. He basically says, um, "You know, you don't need to send your servants to Lebanon. You can you can keep them home. My servants will handle that, and we're going to send the um, timber to them so they can work with it from there." Now um, we're going to get into kind of how this actually worked out and some different ideas about why it worked out the way it did, but there was some negotiation back and forth really driving home that in many respects, this was a conversation between equals. Hiram didn't just immediately bow to Solomon's mm-hmm. ideas and suggestions as if they were commands. Hiram actually countered and said, Hey, we need to make some modifications because you don't quite get what we need to be, needs to be done. And then he also says, I don't want you to pay my servants wages. I want you to provide food for my Royal household. And, you know, Solomon, we just talked about in the last chapter, that one of the things Solomon implemented was that system that allowed his palace and his, the guest of the palace to always have access to fresh food throughout the year by collecting produce from the different geographic locations whenever they were most bountiful. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like, at least to me, that what Hiram is doing is saying, hey, you've got a system in place that works for your household. I want to be in on that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have that same thing for my guests, so let's make it work for us. And uh, we got to remember that Phoenicia, in and of itself, I mean, they are coastal people. They're, they've got a harsh terrain, they don't have a lot of room for agricultural development. And so he really did, Phoenicia itself really did rely on the import of produce from other regions and locations, which wasn't a huge deal because they, they are so involved in trade. In Chronicles 2, we also see that Hiram sends craftsmen to work with Solomon in Jerusalem. And so uh, even though the, the craftsmen don't, I mean, Solomon's servants don't go to, to, Ty, uh, yeah, to Tyre or Sidon, they will come to Jerusalem. Now, an astute reader will wonder uh, how the writer of Chronicles, who, you know, which is written much later, that's not in debate, that, that's very much uh, an established fact. Uh, Would you have the exact words of Solomon and Hiram's correspondence? I mean, how does someone know what was actually said between these two guys? And one of the reasons we know is based off a report that Josephus tells us about twice, two different times. He tells us that these letters were preserved in the archives of Tyre, and they were translated from Phoenician into Greek, by Benander of Ephesus. And then he was an ancient historian of Tyre whose work has been lost to us, but we still have quotations of it, um, uh, recorded in other works. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so it's really cool that we do have, you know, we don't have the original still, those were lost, but when you have these secondary, uh, references that are very old in comparison, that's, those are really cool things. Yeah. Uh, it, and we got to remember, I mean, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, if it wasn't the original source, then we can't trust it. Everything you have about Alexander the Great is removed by centuries from whenever the, he was actually alive. Everything you have about almost every historical figure before the invention of the printing press was removed by decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, from mm-hmm. when they actually were alive. So uh, this is the reason why a lot of the information in the Bible is actually being borne out because, relatively speaking, even if we do have you know a couple of centuries gaps in what the events and when it was recorded, it's still closer than a lot of other uh, historical documents about the same events. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's really cool from one perspective, and it's really sad from another perspective that because the Bible is a religious book or a, a book of religion. It is discounted, yet we will accord a very high esteem and consideration for other cultures' real works, religious works as a way of understanding their history. And yet, for some reason, we discount the Bible, but we are going to accept different um, accounts from ancient cultures. Yeah, like, okay, an example of that is like the Battle of Troy. For years, it was not; it was seen as history, and then it was seen as at least based on history in some extent, and then it was viewed as myth because we are more enlightened than to think that those events actually happened. And then we discover, hey, wait a minute, there's <laughs> some, actually is some historical advantage to this. So, you know, yes, there is a division between mythologies and history, and what there, but there's always seems to be this this tendency in the academic realm to say, oh, well, you know, this mesopotamian document talks about this religious ordinance that had to do with the flooding or the the planting of the fields or this king or that king and so we've got this information that confirms this historical event but then it's like oh well the bible says this but we you know we we really don't know if that's accurate Mm -hmm. so you know just level the playing playing field that's all i have to say um anyway um but we do have these, these references back to these uh, letters between Solomon and Hiram that were supposedly preserved in those archives. And I just think that's really cool. Verse 12, And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. Um, the, the peace between these two kings is attributed to God's gift of wisdom to Solomon. That basically Solomon is the one who was able to see that this needed to to play out well, and uh, the word treaty here—I don't know why the ESV translators decided to to translate this way. It, it's varit, it's what we covenant—the mm-hmm. same word there. So almost every other time we have it in the Bible, it's translated as covenant. And you know, it's really to show you the significance of that bond. Yeah, and so we shouldn't overlook how how important this this treaty and this this bond is because remember we talked about last week how we've seen this before where a king sent messengers to comfort the new king on behalf of the on the fact that the father has died mm-hmm. and it didn't work out so well remember nakash how stupid he was and he, uh, sorry is Hiram uh not Hiram? anyway the the son of nakash i can't remember his name now But the son of Nakash being stupid and thinking that David was sending spies into the land. And Solomon had the wisdom to discern that's not what's happening here. And I actually need to foster this relationship if I'm going to achieve my goals. Mm -hmm. And in that story with David and the son of Nakash, you know, what happened there? He lost his big city. He lost that political power piece in Rabbah and was no longer an independent uh, king, ruling over an independent nation, he was now having to submit to the rulership of Israel and submit to the fact that Israel was going to now kind of basically um, use them as another resource and, you know, would collect taxes off of them. And this is part of where Solomon actually gets some of his wealth from. So Solomon... Has the wisdom to do this because God gave it to him. So, indirectly, the wisdom is, it, you know, God is the one who allows this to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, verse 13 King Solomon drafted labor out of all of Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. So, got some interesting stuff going on here. Verses 14 through 17, I'm not going to read all of those. It tells us in detail how the system worked. Basically, Every month, 10,000 workers were sent to Lebanon, which, you know, Hiram had said, no, don't do it. But now, evidently, this is happening. And the previous month's workers came home. And this was repeated every four months. So every four months, 10,000 men, uh, for four months out of the year, these 10,000 men would be gone to Lebanon and then they would return. And um, in addition to the 30,000 men that were, were drafted, there were 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters, 33,000 officers to oversee the labor force. Uh, we're told the name of the officer, um, we've got a name, uh, but we don't have any other information. We're told that he's put over the men of Gabal, and they're named as part of the workforce, specifically their role in cutting and preparing the, the uh, timber and the stone for the house of the Lord. Now, um, Gabal is an older name for a city more commonly known to us as Byblos. The Greeks renamed Gabal uh, because they realized that there was a large amount of paper goods that were being traded through the city. And it's commonly believed that Gabal is one of, if not the oldest city In the world, and we can date it back to some forces claim up to 8,000 BCE. So, very old city. Um, There was a tradition that claimed that the city was there at the beginning of the world and that it would be there until the end of the world. That the city was ever destroyed, we would know that the end of the world was encroaching. There are a huge number of temples that have been excavated in Byblos. You can look them up, there's images. Um, we've got a large number of royal tombs. We have a necropolis. A necropolis is a city of the dead. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of a, a mass grave. Um, the artifacts in the city really show us that this is a, a conglomeration of a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions, um, which you would totally expect in a port city in a trading post. That, that's what happened. Uh, it's, this is also the home where we get the alphabet. Um, where we go from that period of the cuneiform writing to what we would know and recognize as an alphabet with letters and phonetics, the way they're used mm-hmm. today. But um, Ph-
1: phonet was what is it? Uh, not pictographs. The other one. Uh,
0: uh,
1: it's not phonograph. You're losing me. Um. Well, it's when you go from like pick from like a pictograph is like a it represent the picture. You use mm-hmm. what you carve in. Uh, right. You know, or you use that for writing and, it, and then you use uh, for. Gosh, I can't think of the word. It, but I, When you yeah. use the symbol to represent the sound your mouth makes, what are the
0: <laughs> phonetics?
1: Well, no, it's phonetics, but there, there's a word for the le- for
0: the process. Yeah. The- yeah. Don't ask me questions like that when I only got four hours that. of sleep last night. That's just not uh, right. Uh, but, okay, so while you're Googling, so you'll notice that the word phonetics itself actually sounds a lot like the word Phoenician. Um, and so the the Phoenicians themselves had become very expert workers in limestone, and uh, a lot of their early dwellings were carved out of limestone. And uh, they were well known for the fact that most of their buildings, one of the 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 primary features were that they would use very, very large stones in the foundation of the building, like 15 to 25 foot long stones and 10 to 12 foot uh, wide. And they had no problem moving them from the quarry into the place where the temples would be built. And so... um, the very distinctive style. And I, it, now if you talk about, look at the Wailing Wall in Israel, we see, the, again, large stones that had been moved about the same uh, same time period. Not as large, but they we're also talking about moving it from a larger distance. Um, so it, it was really, it's very interesting that you can kind of almost see evidence there of the influence, at least, of the Phoenician workers. Probably, um the most interesting about this is that there is a sarcophagus to a king, Ahiram, with an A in front, from about 1000 BC, with a 38 word inscription on the rim and lid, and is one of the oldest pieces of Phoenician writing discovered to date. And so, this Ahiram, because it is from the right time period and in the right style, a lot of people think that Hiram in the Bible is a uh, Hiram that the sarcophagus was built for. And so I see we're going over time here. Yeah. Um, it's
1: phonogram versus pictogram.
0: It's going to drive
1: me nuts until I figured out what it was.
0: I totally get that. Well, hey, I'm okay. So I'm going to hang on to Hiram's sarcophagus because I do want to read what it has to say because it's just really interesting. We'll talk about it next time. Uh, and then we'll get some more into the temple building, but real, just you know, real quick. I think it's really cool when you can see how historically these stories fit, uh, the the biblical stories fit within the history that they're mm-hmm. proper and, and they work out well. And, and there's no reason to see any kind of disconnect from Israel and the the culture surrounding them when it comes to things like building a temple. That God actually kept, if you will, for lack of a better word, the same language of the temple intact that the people knew and were comfortable with in order to bring new and surprising revelation. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like us going to a church. We can go to 20 different denominations of churches here in most small towns, Oklahoma. <laughs> just, and we all know what a church building should look like. Mm-hmm even though it's a different denomination and God essentially did this. I mean, it was a little bit bigger of a, of a shift, but God essentially did this for Israel and said, you're going to be able to worship me in a way you comprehend, even as I take you into someplace new, deeper. And, you know, it's surprising based on what other gods would have asked for their followers, but God gave them that point of entry that was not so foreign that they could not comprehend it. And so As we uh, get deeper into the 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 story of the temple, we're going to talk about some of the 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 things that were the same and some of the things that were crossovers between the cultures that would allow people to to engage this. Yeah, you know, they didn't have to learn a whole new language to talk to God. That's that's what it boiled down to, and I think there's a really good teaching point there for us that maybe we need to be okay approaching people where they are in a way that they can understand and communicate back to us. Yeah. So
1: yeah, I anyway, well, cool. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop. And uh, everyone, thanks for joining us. If you liked uh, the conversation, want to be part of it, Raven Creek SC or Raven Creek is where you can find that. Um, send us a message. Let us know what you think. And uh, if you want to help us out, write us a review. That's probably the biggest thing you can do for us. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks.
0: Bye. Bye. faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven creek sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next
1: week